Misunderstand that that is not the exception, that is the rule. The way that the thief was saved is exactly the same as the way that we are saved, exactly the same as Abraham was saved. For he believed and his faith was counted as righteousness. We experience salvation exactly the same. That's the first purpose. But the second purpose is to point out the cost that was paid for our salvation. How much was given for us to have the ability to know God, to be brought through the veil into the presence of the Holy
let's take our Bibles and open to the book of Jonah, chapter 4. Thank you, brother. Jonah, chapter 4. We're going to be considering verses 4 through 11 in chapter 4 as we conclude uh, this study. Before we read those verses, I want to review or remind you of these dependable concepts that we have established. And uh, I've listed them for you on your handout, but through the book of Jonah, we have discovered that concurrent with all of scriptures, by the way, not freestanding, hermeneutically compliant with all scriptures that all Christians are called but not all are compliant. We've also understood that every disobedient Christian will be disciplined because those whom he loves, he chastens. We have come to the understanding that the natural reflex of repentance is obedience. When we repent, we will obey. The result of obedience, we've discovered, is the accomplishment and prosperity of God's will. If you'd like to shorten that, you could say this, uh, surrender equals success. We've also noted that when God sees repentance, he relents from condemnation. That was true then, it's always been true, and it's true now. When we think about those concepts, what they should do is they should challenge us in several ways. As a believer, we ought to live our lives seeking to be compliant and obedient in our Christian walk. Because we understand that all Christians are called, but not all are compliant. And as we seek to be obedient and compliant in our Christian walk, we know and we should expect discipline or chastisement when we are not. So that should work in our lives so that when we come under discipline or chastisement, it causes us to look into our life and determine where have we been disobedient. And we understand that the proper response to discipline is repentance, not resistance. And we understand this very well when we're speaking to our children. We don't understand it so well as free-willed adults and God is speaking to his children. But the proper response is not to resist, it is rather to repent. We also know this, uh, repentance from disobedience is obedience. That's the repentance. You cannot be disobedient and then repent from that disobedience without becoming Obedient, that's the repentance. And so we should seek that. We understand that God's will begins with obedience. You ever, have you ever said that? I'm just looking for God's will for my life. You ever heard anybody say that? I'm really struggling, man, I'm digging, I'm looking for God's will. Well, I can tell you where it starts. It starts in obedience. I can also tell you that the scriptures, again, in commonality, lay out the concept that he will give more to those who have a little. And those who do not have, he will not give to them. And so if you're not somewhat obedient, he's not going to reveal to you more of his will for your life. We understand that obedience accomplishes and prospers God's will. And so if we are seeking thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, then obedience ought to be the motivation because we want to see that will accomplished. We should understand by now that we are never so sinful that repentance is unavailable. If he can deliver the wicked Ninevites, he can certainly deliver you and me. And we understand that when we repent, God forgives. 
So if I have discovered myself under chastisement of God, I have looked into my life with introspection and reflection and determined this is where I've been disobedient. I repent from that obedience, becoming obedient. God forgives me. I can move on. What we want to establish today is that the chief desire of God for man is restoration. That is what God desires. He is long-suffering, not willing that any would perish. His chief desire for man is restoration. And so our, our final dependable concept is that God's chief desire is for restoration. And our final challenge is that we know God is seeking to restore me. He is not seeking to destroy me. And so I should not go through life looking for God's hand of destruction. I should go through life as a believer looking for God's hand of deliverance and restoration. That should be my drive in life. Let's, let's read, let's stand together and read verses 4 through 11. <coughs> Jonah chapter 4, verse 4, Then said the Lord, Dost thou well to be angry? And so Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city and there made him a booth and sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a gourd and made it come over, made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. And so Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. But God prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day and it smote the gourd that it withered. And it came to pass when the sun did arise that God prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah that he fainted and wished in himself to die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, dost thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry even unto death. And then the Lord said, Thou hast had pity on the gourd for which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow, whether it came up in a night and perished in a night. Should I not spare Nineveh, that great city wherein there are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand and also much cattle? I want to share with you this morning for a few minutes on this idea of the restorative desires of a loving God. And what you'll notice in this section before we pray is a very personal involvement of God with Jonah, conversive even. And in the process of that, Jonah's attitude will continue to get worse and God's desire will stay the same for restoration. This is a microcosm of God dealing with every person. Would you pray with me? Ask the Lord to speak to you this morning. Father, we love you. We thank you and we praise you for the worship that we've had thus far. Father, we pray in this moment that you would bless the worship in word, but you would bless the reading of the word. God, through your blessed Holy Spirit, you would guide us and lead us and teach us, mold us into that which you would have us to be. Father, we love you today. I pray for uh, your spirit to work wonders in our presence. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. <clears throat> in this, <clears throat> these verses that we've read, we have three separate questions from God directed unto Jonah. In fact, if we look at this as a paragraph, it opens with a question and closes with a question. Uh, there's opportunity all throughout for Jonah to make proper response. It is uh, also interesting, Some has noted, someone has noted that if you look at the four chapters in a whole, uh, the book opens with a call and closes with a question. I want you to think about that for a moment, just that simple concept that this, this narrative of this prophet in this particular time opens with a call from God and closes with a question. 
I, the reason I want you to think about that is because that is not unlike your Christian life. In specific, it is not unlike your Christian life. If you were born again, if you have been saved, you have been regenerated, you have been born again, you have been redeemed, you use whatever wording you would like to use there that, that reminds us that we have been resurrected from death and to raised to walk in newness of life in Christ, that Christ lives in us. If that has occurred, it is because your attention was called to a knock at the door. The Lord says to us in Revelation chapter 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. <clears throat> and if any man will open the door, I will come in and sup with him and him with me. There is a call that goes out. And if you are born again, you have heard that call and responded favorably to that call. This section that we look at of the scriptures with Jonah, this call that ends with a question that God is asking Jonah, are you doing right? Are you doing well? It is a picture of your life. If you're born again, it's because you have answered the call at the door. You've allowed him in. The, the comment there would be, if that was directed to you, is that still in question? Or is it a statement that can be made? Somebody said to you, have you allowed the Lord in? Could you say yes, most assuredly, most affirmatively? Christ is in me. God is occupying my heart. I have been born again. Or is there still a question mark there? I would encourage you to consider those thoughts as we move through today. As we move on to this passage, we've taken this and broken it up into three little sections that are not uh, completely uh, uh, chronological, but the three, three observations that we see in these few verses. First, I want to talk to you about the pouting prophet, because that's really what we see with Jonah. He's, he's pouting. He's angry. He's not a happy camper. Uh, we see it in verse 5. So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city, and there he made him a booth and sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. Uh, Jonah's pouting. He here uh, looks much like us. He's not really pleased with what's taken place. Uh, at some level, Jonah is still hoping for destruction as he waits and watches to see what might become of the city. Most theologians would tell you here that the 40 days have not expired yet and Jonah's going to camp right there until those 40 days have expired to see if maybe God will relent again and bring about destruction because that's truly what he desired. And as he sits there, he's hopeful that condemnation will, pout, uh, will fall and he's pouting. And as he's pouting, we can see ourselves. If you look closely. Jonah does three things here that I think are very indicative of humanity. Uh, the first thing that we notice is Jonah uh, seeks isolation. He wants to wall himself off. He goes out of the city, away from Nineveh. He is putting some discernible distance between himself and whatever damage might come. And if we think about geography, and, and I'm not big on this, and so, you know, don't go to the bank with this, but they say that Nineveh was on the banks of the Tigris, and so the further east you would go, the higher the elevation would be. Jonah is literally ascending away from and above those wicked Ninevites. He's lifting himself up to a position of judgment and condemnation so that he can watch down upon them in isolation. It's admittedly a difficult position for the believer. And I have these conversations all the time. I, I have a, a lot of them with that guy that lives with me myself. Uh, but I have them with other people as well. 
I've had conversations like this this week. For, for the concerned Christian who is also a compassionate evangelist. And by the way, that should define all of us. It doesn't. If we're being honest, it doesn't. Uh, but it should. We, we should all be concerned about our Christian walk, but we should also all be compassionately evangelistic, seeking to do whatever needs to be done to win those others who are around us in our neighborhood, in our community, in our family. And there, there's, there should be a continual uh, uh, contest within you as to how much effort and time is put into this versus that. And that should be a, a continual game of, of am I doing enough to accomplish evangelism and, and yet still living my life and honoring God in the ways that that he needs to be honored. And, and so it can be a difficult part for the Christian because we desire and we need to practice godly separation, but we need to do so without becoming isolated. It's very hard. If you think that's not hard, you're failing at one of them. I'm, I'm just, I'm, can we, is it okay if we just be honest with each other? Because I can tell you right now, I'm the, I'm the best isolationist in the world. I'm at home in isolation. I can do isolation. That is, isolation is not a problem for me. Right? And I know a lot of people like that. It's the, the idea of separation without isolation that I struggle with. And it's a difficult walk. How, what Christ says to us is that we are to be in the world, but not of the world. That's tough. It's, I, I don't care how easy it is to define. It is not easy to employ. Because we're in the society, and the society is in us, and we're around it, and it's, it's around us, and, and we are living in this economy and trying not to be swept up in the economy, and we're living in this culture seeking to infiltrate the culture without the culture infiltrating us it is not an easy wall it is something that we have to pay attention to and this is the problem or one of them if we want to be proactive we want to attack we want to be continually drilling in to that idea of, of reaching into the darkness and shining into the darkness. But if we're not careful, what we do is we compromise the least of us in order to reach the worst of us. And, what, and by that, I'm talking about not only our children, but I'm talking about those who are babes in Christ. You ever hear that... that uh, that old uh, axiom, uh, fight hell with a water pistol? Well, that's just foolishness. But a lot of people do it. They'll take a water pistol full of understanding and go against the gates of hell. And God's not called us to do such. God has called us to grow in grace and knowledge. God has told us that he has a timeline, that he is sovereign, that all things will occur in his time according to his will, that he has told us that this thing is not on my schedule and your schedule. We cannot rush or slow down the schedule of God. We are to be about occupying this area to the grace, uh, in grace to the glory of God until the fruition of time. And so there should not be an episode wherein we take a, a young, unknowing Christian and throw him to the wolves as much as cannon fodder in order to spark a debate. Or for, for goodness sakes, we include our children in parts of culture that are, that are debilitating to them. And so what we have to do is through discipline and discipleship, develop ourselves and others 
as soldiers of the cross who can stand against the wiles of Satan and do so in love and compassion towards the lost. Jonah steps out in complete isolation. He's, he's washed his hands of it. He's done with it. And he's going to watch from a distance the destruction that occurs. My question to you is, are we guilty of that at times? Are we guilty of practicing isolation at times? Are we guilty of ascending above the need, placing some distance between us and the possible damage of condemnation? Well, I think we are. Isolation. The second thing we notice about Jonah is he goes up there and expresses his independence. He goes up on top of that hill and he builds a booth for himself. And there he sat under the shadow of it. It's a booth for one. It's just large enough for the man and his ego, single occupancy. He didn't need anyone to do it for him. He didn't need anybody to do it with him. He didn't need anybody. He could just do it all by himself. He would enjoy this, this, this position of spite and bitterness all by his lonesome. He would sit there and lick his own wounds. And if you've not been around any length of time, I know hundreds of these guys and women. We know them today. They are so independent. They don't need the church. <laughs> Christ died for the church. I got news for you. You cannot walk with Christ in a healthy relationship without the church. Christ died for the church. I don't need the church. You got the church, I got Jesus. Yeah, you do. And when you stand in front of him, if you are indeed his, he's going to ask you, why you didn't build the church. They don't need the church. They don't need uh, their friends. They don't need their family. They don't need anybody. They're so independent. Some of them are even independent of God. They're just independent. Jonah, in isolation, goes up on this hill and expresses his independent independence. And all the while... He is displaying indignation. <clears throat> there he is in contempt of Nineveh. He is full of contempt for Nineveh. His desire is to see their ruin and their condemnation and their destruction because in doing that, it would prove that they were wicked and he was not and his prophecy was true and they should have listened sooner. And it would fulfill his own desires he isn't really uh, introspective here at all now I want you to think about what we know about Jonah here is Jonah whom the call of God came to and he resisted and he ran and then he attempted to die but he has no thoughts about that at all there's not a moment where he sits there thinking, a, 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 a moment of introspection where he begins to think about, well, you know, I was disobedient and I was delinquent and I needed discipline and I had to repent and God restored me. He just simply sees himself as chosen of God. I'm one of them. You hear a lot of that language today too. I'm chosen. I know you're chosen. But you're also called to a particular purpose. And, and he sees himself of, as chosen of God. And the others are less than deserving of God's grace and mercy and kindness and patience and determined deliverance. And so he just sits back in indignation to watch and to wait for their deserved destruction with full confidence of his own deliverance as cushion and comfort. That's exactly what we see in this guy, Jonah. This is his devolving attitude. And it is the attitude of many who occupy cushioned seats in air-conditioned church houses across the nation today. I'm good. 
I've got what I need. I've accomplished what I should accomplish. I'm doing what I should do. God loves me. This wicked world, those wicked people, that wicked movement, this wicked continent, God loves me. And they set in isolation, independence, and indignation towards the rest of the world, believing that their salvation is all the cushion they need and everyone else can just be condemned. They're isolated from the problem. They're independent of the body which works to resolve the need and they're indignant towards the lost or the calamity that awaits them. Jonah's a picture of the church, folks. The, the Laodicean version of the church. We see this pouting prophet and, and if we'll just kind of pull the blinds back a little bit, we'll say, okay, that stings a little bit. I feel a little bit of that. I may have some of that in my life that I need to deal with. Well, the next thing I want you to consider is the prepared things, because I think they teach a really interesting lesson. We've noticed several prepared things in Jonah's tale already. We saw the great wind was prepared, and the great fish was prepared. We're going to see three more here in a moment. I want to I don't want to go back there, but I want you to hear this. The great wind, I believe, was prepared for exposure. And I think that the great fish was prepared for export. I think the first revealed where Jonah was, and the second removed him to where he was supposed to be. And I think God prepares those things in our life. They're forms of discipline. And he did that with Jonah to try to put him back on the right track because God's desire is restoration. And then we, we come to this, these few verses, and there are three more prepared things. You saw them as we read it. God prepared a gourd in verse 6, and then in verse 7, he prepared a worm. And in verse 8, uh, or yeah, verse 8, he prepared that vehement east wind. Those things were all put there for a purpose. They're, they're not just something that occurred, that God is working in order to bring about restoration. It's interesting to me, I think the gourd, and it says as much, but I think the gourd is something that was prepared for Jonah for comfort. It says as much there, it says that God prepared a gourd and made it to come up over Jonah that it might uh, be a shadow over his head. Why? To deliver him from his grief. And Jonah was exceedingly glad of the gourd. So I think God brought that gourd about uh, as comfort. And, you know, if you're into this kind of thing, they say it was probably a palma crista. It would grow very rapidly. It's got one large leaf per branch, and it would cover them, but they're very tender. One little injury anywhere, the whole thing dies. He brought it up just like that for comfort. I'm confident that the shade of that living thing was cool. It was comfortable. You ever snuggle up under a shade tree in the, in the heat? And there's, there's a coolness there. There's a, there's a relief in that. That's, I'm sure. I'm sure it was that way. I would imagine that Jonah even felt blessed of God that it had grown, but we notice that he certainly never mentions as much. I think God's kind of winking at him here with this plant that grew up from nothing in the middle of nowhere in no time at all. And we see that indeed Jonah was exceedingly glad, but not specifically towards God. There is no... Thanksgiving. There's no sigh of <clears throat> relief uh, for the care of God. There's only this temporal gladness for what would really be relative to a carnal comfort, a fleshly comfort. Right. I was thinking about that this week, and I thought, you know, what is the what is the the detail in that? What is the application in that? And my mind went to Romans chapter two, and I don't want to jump around and so we're not going to go over there but in Romans chapter 2 in the first half portion of Romans Paul is first three chapters Paul is making the argument that all are guilty all are under condemnation all have fallen short that's his goal he starts with the heathens and he works through the Jews and he works it to where all have fallen short of the glory of God and in chapter 2 as he is uh, talking about uh, this concept of 
of uh, commonality of guilt across the range of humanity, he says in verse 4 that God's goodness, kindness, is meant to lead to repentance. But people see it wrongly. They see it as everything is okay. He says specifically in verse 4, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and the forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? If, if we take this gourd, this idea of comfort, in that light, what should have happened in that moment is Jonah should have been thanking and praising God for the deliverance from that difficulty and for that gourd that was a kindness and a mercy given to him, that he would see that as riches, that he would see that as a blessing, and that it would lead to repentance, wherein Jonah, in a moment of relief and comfort, would say, you know, God, I've been thinking, you sure have been good to me, and I'm thankful that you're good to me and you're being good to these Ninevites. See, that's compassion. That is recognition. And and that's what kindness is meant to be. I I wonder uh, at that sometimes, I wonder what kindness, what comfort has God placed in our life seeking repentance from a faulty attitude or a failing action that we have been exceedingly glad over but not particularly thankful to the Lord nor reflective of what it means about God's goodness. You say, well, what are you talking about? Well, I mean, maybe I'm talking about the fact that we've enjoyed 250 years of freedom in America to preach and teach the gospel, and most of us have swollen into isolation and indignation. I don't know. That's a possibility, right? I mean, you you know, we see in the book of Acts that the harder they stomp on the gospel, the quicker it spreads. And here we are in America enjoying freedom and liberty, and is it spreading? I don't know. It's hard to tell, isn't it? I wonder, uh, even in our personal lives, I wonder, have you ever, have you ever been there? And I don't want to be too, uh, too transparent, but where you've enjoyed some period of comfort and ease in life and you just kind of got accustomed to it and you were used to it and that's the way things were and then life changes and you look back and you remember how easy it was and I wish I would have enjoyed it more. Maybe you have a, a lull in your, in your time and, for example, I have education left that I would like to work on. And there was a time when we were smaller and we were in a rented facility and there was no grounds to keep up and there was no building programs. And I could have been hard at it four, five, six hours a day in my education. Now I have this great desire for education and six, seven hours a day I'm worried about facilities and building programs and visitation. And I remember and I think, oh man, I should have did it when we were over there. And it's kind of that where there's this thing that comes into your life that is for comfort, that is God's goodness given to you to help you see and repent and do those things that need to be done. Well, then the worm comes. It says that God prepared the worm as well. And when the morning came the next day and smote the gourd, it withered. So just as surely as he had enjoyed the comfort and the coolness of that shade, he would be missing it. I think the worm was for contradiction. I believe that the worm destroyed the comfort of the gourd, thereby creating an atmosphere of contradiction, which is meant to result in conviction. You ever heard somebody say this? I know that you have because they're quoting scripture when they say it. Uh, The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. They're actually quoting Job, loosely. The concept there is the sovereignty of God, uh, that, that he gives for blessing sometimes, and sometimes he takes for teaching or instruction. It's 
to bring about confrontation. It's to bring about a moment of clarity, a moment of, uh, I, I want your attention. God is contradicting you. He's wanting your attention. Why? Well, because God's working in your life towards restoration. And so he's, he's contradicting. Most of the time, when that occurs, when God gives and then God takes away, we, we experience, we're prone to bitterness uh, over the loss of that comfort or that blessing, whatever that thing was. And, and what we do is we see exactly the way Jonah is responding. He was angry even unto death over the loss of the gourd. Now, he didn't plant the gourd. He didn't water the gourd. He didn't even pray for the gourd. He didn't ask for the gourd. He just inherited the gourd, but now that it's gone, he's angry even unto death. And oftentimes the good things in our life, we didn't particularly pray for them. We didn't beg for them. We didn't work for them. God just kind of blesses us with them, and we think we deserve them because God gave them to us. And then sometimes in order to get our attention, God removes one of those comforts or he removes one of those blessings. It is for contradiction. It is so that you will lift your eyes up to him. And he's done so, this occurrence of contradiction. I imagine if Jonah would have just thanked God for the provision and the comfort of that gourd. Imagine if, if Jonah would have felt the heart of God in that event and, and imagine if Jonah would have said, God, you're so good to me, and you've been so good to me, and I see now that, that they deserve this goodness as well because I didn't deserve it to begin with. Imagine if that would have been Jonah's attitude. This book would read differently. It would end differently. We would have warmer feelings about it because it kind of leaves you hanging. You kind of wonder, what is Jonah doing? What's he going to do? What happens? What's next? I wonder, what has God been showing you or us through contradiction? What, what has he revealed to you or to us as a church where we maybe are compromised or we're not um, invested as much as we should be in the salvation of the lost? And then, of course, next, he sends the vehement east wind. The wind is for conviction. And it's the only way to read the passage. The wind is for conviction. The wind confirms that the comfort is gone. You know what a vehement east wind is? I'm not 100% sure about this, but I feel pretty good in this statement. I did a little, just a little bit of looking around. It's basically no wind at all and the sun bearing down upon you. That's what a vehement east wind is. There's just no breeze. It's just stifling heat. And in that moment, when that vehement east wind occurred, Jonah would be reminded every tick of the clock that the shade was gone, the comfort was gone, that good thing was gone, and this, this worst thing is now upon me. And, and he was... He was, uh, he was, the loss of comfort pushed him to a place of response. And his response was physically and emotionally, he was ill. He was fatigued. He was faint. He felt as if he would die. In fact, he believed that death would be better than what he was dwelling in. Listen, surely to goodness, you know people that feel that way about their life. Maybe you have felt that way about your life. Would be better just to go ahead and die. Well, why don't we look behind those emotions and see what God's trying to bring to us? What is God showing us? What is God revealing to us? What is that contradiction for? Why was that loss of comfort brought about? What is the conviction? Where is the need for repentance? I don't want to be hokey or trite in application, but it occurs to me that 
we run from conviction an awful lot. Now, many times, you would not be aware of this, but it is not uncommon for someone to leave a church because of the, the teaching and preaching are too convicting or they are, uh, they're too intense or it's too heavy or it's too dark or it's too serious. Well, you know what that is? That's running from conviction. Now, look, I, I don't like mean preachers. I hope I'm not one. I, I certainly don't want to be one. And I've known some. You know, they're just hateful. And everything they do stings, and everything they say leaves a mark, and, and everything is condescending. And I, I don't want to be that way, and I, I don't think anybody should be browbeaten or beaten into submission. But if the word of God calls it a sin and a man of God stands up and declares it to be true and you are guilty of it, that conviction is not from him. That conviction is from the word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit of God and it is meant to be repented of, not run from. And this picture here is of that idea where they run from conviction. What we should do is Realize it, respond to it, repent of it. You know what typically they're looking for? And, and I, I, I hate the word they because, you know, it leaves such an ambiguous idea. But oftentimes people go looking for a place that will um, ensure them of their eventual glory and assure them of uh, their immediate uh, goodness and issue them the magnanimous grace of God for today so that everything is comfort and balm and there's never any conviction or contrast or call to respond. You're, you're saved By grace through faith, but your salvation is not without responsibility. The grace of God is not without responsibility. And if it's harmful, to, if it's hurtful for somebody to hear that, it breaks my heart that it hurts you to hear that, but it's God's word. And we ought to be challenged, we ought to be convicted. There ought to be a continual stirring in our souls of, am I doing those things that God is challenging me to do? Am I growing? Am I, am I becoming a disciple? Am I learning? And this is the picture we get here that it is the goodness of God that brings repentance. It, it is true conviction brings sorrow, and godly sorrow worketh repentance. And so the question is, there any, is there any conviction that you've run from, that you've resisted, that you've turned a blind eye towards? Because if God is revealing it to you, if he's challenging you with it, don't run from it. Recognize it, realize it, respond to it, and repent of it. And that's from you to me and me to you, all of us. We're in the same economy of God in that area. I think the, the last thing that we see in these few verses, and we'll try to close here, is the penetrating questions that God asks. There's three times in these few verses the Lord poses a question directly to Jonah. Each is an opportunity to repent and embrace the work that God is performing. Each was an attempt by God to bring restoration full circle to Jonah. And the very first one we looked at last week in verse 4, where God just says, is it good for you to be angry? And we kind of shared that last week. We ended on that thought that, is this the correct response? Jonah, would you deny the love of God, the long-suffering of God, the mercy of God, 
to these people? Do you suppose they should suffer and die for their sins? Are their sins worse than yours? Is it proper that you've received forgiveness and second chances and they will not? And this is what I think he's doing for Jonah in this moment. He's saying to Jonah, listen, I want you to consider yourself. I want you to look into yourself. And I want you to think about how you ran from me and how you disobeyed me and how I delivered you and how I restored you and how I responded to your repentance. And Jonah, is this the right response if you think about how I have dealt with you? And he's giving them a moment for introspection and remembering. And if you're born again, if you've experienced what uh, Brother Kenny just sang about where you know, you know what you deserve. And you know what God did for you. You know specifically what Christ did for you as you and in your place. That memory comes back to you and you consider yourself and you, you look around and you realize these other people aren't so bad. They just need the grace of God. And, and then he, he says to him again in verse 9, or is it good for you to be angry for the gourd? Is that the proper response? And this is what he's saying, consider your surroundings. Jonah, look around you. Look at the blessings in your life. Look at all that I've provided for you. And you are yet so hard-hearted towards others who do not have such blessings. You didn't toil fruitlessly. I've rewarded you. You've been blessed. And I think he's providing for Jonah there a moment of reflection. Carla and I had this conversation going down the road yesterday. It was kind of interesting. It just kind of organically occurred. We were talking about all of the growth around this area, which is outrageous. If you look at everything that's being dug up and torn up right now, what the next five to ten years looks like, this place won't resemble what it does today, and it doesn't now what it did ten years ago. And she says, I wonder what the next ten years hold for us. And we were talking about, you know, what that could look like. And in a moment, she and I both said, well, you know, we enjoy an awful lot right now. God's really good to us. Uh, he's, you know, we, we're both working hard and all that good thing, but we're healthy and our kids are healthy and uh, we've got a, a, a good place to serve here and, and we just enjoy life. I mean, it's, it's good. And we were reflective on that for a few minutes. Because I know that it could change. And things could be harder. They could be more difficult. And I would want us to remember when things weren't hard. Because God's in both sides. And I think he's providing a moment here for Jonah for reflection. Wherein you could say, you could think of all the goodness that God has presented in your life. And, and should these people expire without the same goodness? And then lastly, God says to him there in verses 10 and 11, the Lord says to him, how can this be the right response? I want you to consider the souls. I want you to consider the souls. Now think about yourself, look at your surroundings, and now think about all of those souls. And the souls that God mentions specifically, the Lord mentions here is 120,000 children, I believe is what he's referring to. They're not even intelligent enough to discern their right hand from their left. There's 120,000 of them that were spared in this condemnation passing over Jonah. Should I have just destroyed those children? I want you to think about their souls. I think this is really the coup de grace, the final blow, if you will, is, is the question. It is the consideration. It is the motivation, or at least it should be. For everything that we, that we believe and think and say and do. What about the people? What about the souls? It's, it's bad enough to live and struggle and suffer and die. Should they suffer eternally? When I have an answer for that. We have an answer for that. The scriptures have an answer for that. What about the soul? Should we not be compassionate enough to, to pray and, and to pay and to participate and to push and 
to pursue evangelism and the Great Commission and, the, the, and to populate heaven with those who will believe? Should we not? What about the souls? Well, preacher, is it all my responsibility? No, but some of it is. Part of it is. Surely we all carry some responsibility. Well, aren't we doing this? Well, I don't know. It depends on what you base your decisions. What are you motivated by? Are you motivated by self, surroundings, or lost souls? Which of those things are preeminent in your thought process? Are you, comfort, are you focused on comfort? Are you focused on compliance? Do you consider yourself better than others by any standard other than the grace of God? Is there a group that you believe to be beyond the reach of the gospel? The question is, what about the souls? This is what Matthew Henry said. One soul is of more value than the whole world. Surely then one soul is of more value than many gourds. Should we have more concern for our own and others' precious souls than for the riches and enjoyments of this world? The question this morning is, what about the souls? What is God trying to do in your life? He's seeking restoration. If you're lost, he wants to save you. He wants to see you redeemed. He wants to restore you to a rightful position as an heir. If you were saved, he is seeking to bring restoration full circle in your life. There is nothing that we've covered in this study, in this sermon series, that is in question of truth. It's all very simplistic truth. The question is not whether or not it's true. The question is whether or not you will respond properly to the truth that's been taught. You say, well, what is the response? Well, the response may be based upon the blessings of God in your life, that you repent and believe the gospel, confessing the Lord as your Savior, and you walk in accordance and compliance with that confession. You say, well, I've already done that. I'm saved. So what is my response? Well, your response is to remember the grace of God that has forgiven you and regenerated you and begin your quest for the souls of other men. What about the souls? Would you stand with me this morning? Your head's bowed and your eyes closed. There may be many responses. The one thing I'm 100% sure of is that there is a response due from you in accordance with the truths that have been taught. What that response is, only you and the Lord know. I wish that you'd be faithful to it, obedient to it, responsive to it. Father, I pray you'd bless this time of invitation. Pray, God, you'd work in our hearts and in our lives. Give us, Lord, an unquenchable desire to see the lost saved. Give us, Lord, a desire to be obedient. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you come this morning, y'all? Jesus is